Hello and welcome to episode number 202 of Smart Podcast Trashy Books. I'm Sarah Wendell from Smart Bitches Trashy Books, and with me today is Lisa Kleypas. Yes, it's another interview where I barely keep my crap together because I'm so excited. Uh, I'm going to chat with Lisa about her upcoming historical marrying Winterborn and about the somewhat ecstatic fan response, which I was totally a part of, to the announcement of her upcoming book, Devil in Spring. Now, this episode was recorded shortly after her announcement, and we talk a little bit about how, what that did for her and her writing process. We also talk about writing in the industrial era amid the inventions and social changes, and we talk about writing books that stand up to the three-in-the-morning test among readers. I also have some questions from Patreon supporters as well, who got a chance to send me some questions before I did the interview. This podcast is sponsored by romance reader and fantasy author Angela Corrati. If you like your urban fantasy with music, magic, and computer geekery, then explore Fairy Blood, book one of the Free Court of Seattle series, available in print and digitally wherever ebooks are sold. In honor of this podcast, book one and two of the series will be on sale for 99 cents each until July 15th, 2016. So if it's not July 15th, 2016, you can get both of the books for 99 cents. Candice Thompson of Seattle thinks she's as normal as the next computer geek, and up till now she's been right. But her world is about to turn on its ear because she is the daughter of a Seely Court mage and her mortal husband, and her fairy blood is awakening. Suddenly, the city she's known all her life is transforming before her eyes. Trolls haunt the bike trails, fairies and goblins run loose in the streets, an old woman who is not what she seems, and a young wanderer running from his past stand ready to defend Seattle and Candice from magical assault. She will need those allies, for the power rising within her is calling her fake kin to the Emerald City to find her and kill her. You can find this book wherever ebooks are sold and print as well. And you can find Angela at AngelaHighland.com or on Twitter at Anna the Piper. Author and podcast fan Kelly Mayer is sponsoring the podcast transcript and celebrating her latest birthday, but she's giving the gift to you. You guys get all the presents in this episode. How rad is that? Her Sweet Heat collection of backlist titles are available for half price at all outlets through the end of July 2016, and her short story Blizzard Bliss is available for free through the link in the podcast entry. Volume 2 of Sweet Heat contains the novel End Balance and a short story Spring Storm. In End Balance, CEOs of rival companies must deal with corporate espionage and the one-night stand they had months earlier. That always works out when you try to avoid talking about your one-night stand in romance, like that's always effective. Volume 3 contains three paranormal novellas, including Tara's Awakening, in which an idealistic woman in a dystopian future discovers the industrialist she has gone to confront has a much longer personal history than she would have ever expected. Each collection is on sale for $1.99, and you can find links to all three volumes at smartbitchestrashybooks.com slash podcast. The music you're listening to is from Crime and the Forces of Evil, and I'll have information at the end of the podcast as to who this is. And of course, I will have links to all of the books and movies and things we discuss in this episode. But now, without any further delay, on with the podcast. I have so many questions for you. And the podcast has something called a Patreon, which is sort of like Kickstarter, except that instead of just funding one project with Patreon, people can become like patrons of something like a show or an artist or a graphic novel. So people can pledge a dollar or $3 a month or $5 a month and support the podcast, which helps me, you know, with better editing and better equipment and doing transcripts and stuff. So the people who have supported the podcast and become patrons, I asked them this week, you guys, I'm going to interview Lisa Kleypas. I'm trying to keep myself cool. What would you like me to ask? And people just flooded the comments and we're like oh my god I'm so excited for you oh my gosh this is so great so I have questions from readers I have questions from other people there are so many people are so excited that you are just just that you do what you do makes people so happy I I can't tell you how much I appreciate that because I I love what I do and you know you know you know from working you know in a solitary environment sometimes that you know you you feel like you're just in there and that nobody really knows what you're doing. And so sometimes I'll take, you know, an extra half hour to research, you know, what kind of socks somebody would have worn back then. And, and the fact that the readers appreciate that I'm doing that means a lot, you know? So, I mean, their, their feedback really keeps me going. Isn't it lovely 
just to mm-hmm. have somebody say what you did just made my day better. It's just the well, best. Yes. Feeling. Yes. I mean, the uh, romance readers are so fantastic in telling you what you did right. You know, and of course, obviously they tell you what you did wrong too. And that helps, you know, but, but the fact that they're so eager to tell you what they liked is, is tremendously helpful because, you know, I'm, I'm one of those writers. Yes, I do write to please myself because I enjoy it, but, but absolutely I write to please readers. You know, that's so, why I'm doing it. When you did your Facebook post announcing the special <laughs> epilogue, which had been excised from my book, I got it the day before I left RT, and I was like, Jesse, you have got to be kidding me that you cut the epilogue out with a razor. <laughs> like, she's like, oh, yeah, I used my box cutter and everything. So were you prepared for the squee and joy and absolute online dance party when you announced that the next book it features previous characters? No, Sarah, I could not believe it. I was so thrilled. I just nearly passed out when I realized what the response was because, you know, I, I, I know why that book, you know, was fun for me to write and what it meant to me personally. But, you know, the, to get such an emotional response from readers, it just made me so joyful. And, and it gave me a, a few minutes of the humbles, you know, where yeah. I'm just like, wow. But I got over that. <laughs> I I have to say you you posted it, Avon tweeted it, and then like three quarters of my tweet stream, which are romance people, were basically just losing their ever loving minds for like three straight hours. And then as it hit different time zones and people were ringing up, what what's going on? Oh my gosh. It was so wonderful that I mean, I know that it's a it's a book announcement and it's um, you know, it's it's something that you've been working on, but there was so much joy in the reaction. Oh, it was just delightful. So I thank you. It. Thank you for that. Well, thank you. You know, it, it's that that book, you know, you, you do a couple of books in your career where it's really sort of a touchstone or something that where everything that you can do well really comes together, I think. And so the first book for me like that was Dreaming of You. And then um, and I thought, well, you know, you're lucky if that happens once. But the fact that it happened again with Devil in Winter was just, you know, incredible. So when I decided to, to go ahead and do this, and I just, uh, before I really committed personally to, to writing Devil in Spring and having it be their son, I thought, you know, I have to, to make sure that I can do this. So I was writing this prologue where Sebastian and Evie are just talking and, and you know, flirting. And it was the most amazing thing. As soon as I started writing their dialogue, it was like there was some place in my brain where they exist. And it just tapped into that. And it was natural and easy. And I thought, okay, yeah, I, I can do it. Absolutely, I can do it. And it was familiar. Yes. It was yes. like revisiting old friends. Exactly. And and I have tried to do that where I'll have characters visit you know, from one past book in, into another one. And sometimes it takes a lot more work because at the time that you're writing a book, you're just in a certain place personally and emotionally and the characters just, you know, take on their own life. But then you try to get that back later and it's just, it, it's like trying an old recipe that you knew used to taste a certain way and then you do it and you're like, you know, it's not the same as I remember. I remember this is much more different than you know, it actually tastes right now. So it exactly. was... It was fun for you to visit Evie and Sebastian. Oh, oh, incredibly fun. And, you know, I, I loved the idea of showing them middle-aged, uh, you know, 30 years after they had married and to, to imagine what changes they would have gone through, but the things that would have stayed the same. Mm-hmm. And, um, it, you know, it, it helps personally because I've been married, oh, like 22 years. And, and you know, my husband and I have, have the, a typical marriage with, you know, ups and downs and, and good things and things we need to work on. But we've always been really flirtatious with each other and really like complimenting each other. And so, you know, I, I felt like that definitely would be the case with, with Evie and Sebastian and, oh, yes. you know, that made it fun. Yeah. And also he, he has a habit of making fun of his more rake-tacular past. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like he fully yes. owns that he was up to no good. Yeah, exactly. And and I think the the self-mocking quality, you know, is, is one of the things that probably makes him more popular is, is uh, you know, he never takes himself seriously. And you get you get tired of these guys who always, you know, have this this attitude and they're, um, you know, they, they always have to be on top and be dominating and be the winner. And when, when you've got someone who's almost more of a, 
I don't know, like uh, Oscar Wilde type where they're always sort of making fun of themselves too. You know what I mean? That that sort of irreverent quality, you know, that it's uh, it makes it more appealing as far as I'm concerned. I, I think not taking yourself seriously is super hot. Yeah. Oh, I do too. I do too. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, so I, I'm in the middle of writing Devil in Spring right now. I'm having a fabulous time because the heroine Pandora is, uh, she's got ADHD. So, you know, which, which I certainly have more than my fair share of. So it's really fun to, to kind of show how you would try to control yourself and your impulsiveness and your creativity, you know, when it's, when it would be frowned on and she's so out of place. And, uh, Gabriel, the, the son is so, you know, so in command of himself and so, confident that it's, mm-hmm. it's really a fun pairing because there's a lot of chemistry. Yeah. Oh, yay. So what are some of the things that you're really enjoying about this new series? I know that I know that you're having a really good time with some of the setting elements. What are some <laughs> of the things you're really liking about it? Well, the the uh, I'm, I'm deeper into the industrial era than ever before. And so the, the gadgets and the inventions and the whole attitude of the time period, like every, back then, everybody was just so confident that they could just conquer the world and, you know, things would be invented. And so it, it just makes the characters really bold and, uh, you know, they're, they're taking on the world. And, and, and as a family, this Ravenel family are just I, I love doing this. They're, they're just a bunch of misfits that come together to form a family, um, you know, because I, cause I, I really believe, you know, in, in real life as well, that your family are the people that you choose, that, that you love, you know, your friends or your family, that oh, the yes. people that, that mean a lot to you. And uh, so it's not just blood relations. So here you've got this really misfit family of oddballs, and, I, and I'm very deliberately uh, – wanted to play around with a mixture of aristocrats and uh, industrialists and self-made people. So it's just like a very vibrant grab bag mix. And that, and that makes things interesting. So it's, it's not everyone just sitting around or, or standing in a ballroom talking. You know? Oh, yes. And, and found family is such a powerful concept. And as you, as you said, it exists now that you, you, know, you build a family around you of the people who care about you and also people who like the same things you do. I mean, romance readers form a lot of found families and yes. they connect with one another. Oh, yes, yes. And, and it's, uh, it's so fun when you actually, you know, meet other romance readers who you, you have this instant connection or bond with because, you know, have you read this book? Yes, I have. Oh, I love that, too. And it's like you have this uh, vocabulary that, yes. that you all share. And I Absolutely. love that. Absolutely. And you have this, this shared history of having read the same books. Yes. Even if, yes. You, even if you didn't know them, because you've had that same experience of visiting those two characters and loving those characters, mm-hmm. that's an incredibly powerful connection that I think a lot of people misunderstand and, and don't quite get how important it is. Oh, I know. It's like it's like you know the same people. You yes, know? It's, it's exactly it's, like that. Yeah. And it's funny. Like I, uh, I had this incredible honor of getting to write the foreword for this 35th uh, reissue, you know, 35th anniversary edition of Shauna by Kathleen Woodowis, which is I out. saw that. Also, your yeah. introduction was terrific. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Oh, it, it was not easy for, no. for several reasons. I was going to say, I didn't, I was looking at that like, all right, how's Lisa going to do this? Because this book has some problematic <laughs> elements up in here. I know. I know. And <laughs> so, like, uh, of course, when, when Carrie, my editor, asked me if I wanted to, without even thinking, I said, yes, 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 yes. Because, uh, you know, Kathleen Woodwiss started it all. I mean, she founded the genre. And um, so I said yes. And then, you know, I went back and read Shauna. And, and even before I read it, I thought, yeah, yep, there's going to be some bodice ripping and some questionable things. And I remember the heroine had some, some uh, personality things that I didn't necessarily like. But but when you read it in context, which is kind of, I, I think, what I said in the in the foreword, you know, then you can appreciate it for what it is. And my God, it's a big, magnificent, detailed, you know, sweeping, experience. enormous book. Yes, it is. It's it's an experience. So that you know, it, it it was actually kind of fun to see what used to be allowed in in romance and and how bloody long the book used to be. <laughs> 
you know? <laughs> and how I, small the text is. <laughs> I know, I know. It's, it's, it's so hard now because I love uh, the history that I can put in there. And I, and I love little interactions between minor characters. And I, I love these, these juicy details. And I would love to just let go and, and make it a 600-page book, which they used to be able to do. But, oh, yeah. But, you know, now you, you really just can't. I mean, it's, nobody has time for that, and nobody really wants to wade through all that stuff. You know, it's, it's like going to a dessert buffet and having 18 desserts, which I personally love. But uh, you, can't you eat just all, te- all 18. Exactly. Well, I've tried, but you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, I can imagine someone listening to this conversation is going, nope, nope, nope. I would totally read 600 pages. You just go ahead. Go ahead. Just, just go. Go do that. Go there, do that now. I know, and you know, there, you know, there are always kind of trends or things that you hear, mm-hmm. and so the last few years, I, I've really heard because of eBooks, everything has to be fast, fast, fast. Uh, keep the book short, you know, really just pare it down. And to me, you know, you're you're writing historical, and it's like, well, if it has to be that pared down, and you can't put any detail about what someone is eating or what someone is wearing, you know, why the hell are you writing historical? I mean, <laughs> you know, I'd write a contemporary and and you know be you know succinct. So so I'm like, no, I'm going to put some of that in there. And and thank God, readers have really responded and said that's great, and and they enjoy that. What's funny is you just touched on my next three questions, so this is oh. perfect. Thank you. Making my job super easy. I can stop breathing into a paper bag and being nervous. Okay. So do you miss writing contemporaries? Do you ever take a break and are like, all right, present day, I need somebody in jeans to talk to me in my brain? Like, do you ever miss the contemporaries at all? Sometimes. Sometimes. It's it's such a different, different art to me because um, – when I wrote the contemporaries, especially the, the Texas contemporaries that I did, that you know the conflict obviously can't be as external as a historical because you know we don't have wonderful kidnappings and forced marriages and, and things that are so easy plot-wise you know to to have fun with. So the conflict has to be much more internal, much more psychological, and not only does that take a lot of thinking and considering and pondering, but but it takes a lot for me emotionally, you know, mm-hmm. I, and so I have to really invest in the story and, and the characters in a way that's really exhausting. So especially with a, there were a couple of those Texas books where, um, afterward I just felt so incredibly drained and like I had just been through this, this big experience and it, it was satisfying, but, um, it's different if, if I would write, you know, more light, more fun contemporaries, I wouldn't have to wade through all that, but but to me, it, that just seems naturally what I'm drawn to in a contemporary is, is a lot of that that emotional, psychological stuff. Well, that's also present in your historicals, too. The characters who you write have a lot of internal and external stuff to get through. Yes. It's a good balance of internal and external conflict for both genres, I think. Because you, oh. you, the, the more you have characters that have problems or or habits or ways of seeing the world that need to be undermined and shaken up and dismantled the more powerful it is to read about them and you can keep going with the effects of that experience within you know more and more chapters it's it's very difficult i think to sustain for 90,000 words an internal conflict of and this is why this is not my favorite trope um my ex-girlfriend broke my heart, so I'm oh. swearing off all women forever, except yes. my mom and my sister, who no yeah. one is allowed to date. And I'm just like, dude, I'm so out of here. I am nope and right out. Nope, nope, it's nope, bye. I'm, and, you know, when you, when you try as a writer to sustain something with, with that kind of incredibly light, easily solved conflict, uh, it's it's really draining. It's tiring to, yeah. to try to keep it going. <laughs> And you're like, okay, what can I make happen to try to make things more interesting now? So, yep. uh, so no, it's 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 definitely more fun, I think, with a lot of baggage, and and really, it, it, when I read or when I write a story with a lot of baggage and a lot of conflict like that, you know, it's it's very satisfying. You know, like it's just this really good feeling, um, like like you've solved something in yourself. Oh, totally. You know? When I do a contemporary again, because I do plan to in the future, um, I, I do have to make sure that I have something that I really want to say. You know, like oh I, yes, yeah, I want some 
issue or or psychological thing that that would be really satisfying personally to to work through and so I, I just never want to push that and I'm, I'm going to certainly finish this historical series and then take a look at you know what I might like to do or what would be satisfying but I'm I'm learning you know, really, I have I have to trust my gut, and if it if it doesn't oh, yes. feel like writing a contemporary, then I, I'm not going to push it. You know, it's funny. That's one of the questions I have from Katie, who is a podcast patron. She said, "Could you ask whether she's writing any more contemporaries, or if she's sticking <laughs> with historical?" And then she wrote, "I realize this is ironic, in that when she published contemporaries, everyone wanted her to write historicals, and vice versa. <laughs> but I still want to know." That question oh. made me laugh so hard because I'm sure you hear that a lot. What are you going to write this? But you're writing that. You're going to write this now. Exactly. Well, yeah, and my, my, my thanks to Katie for asking because, you know, I, I like it that I, I hopefully did a good enough job that somebody's interested in me going back and taking another stab at it. So, uh, so the answer is, you know, I'm sure that I will. I'm sure that I will at, at, at some point, but only when I'm sure that I can do a good job at it, you know? I do have a question from Rebecca that is related. And I want to just say that if this is a if this is a thing that your gut is considering, we're both going to vote for this. Have okay. you considered writing a paranormal or any other genre you haven't published in yet? You epic, know, epic Clapus fantasy. I'm here I, for that. I'm totally here. Uh, Sarah, I <laughs> I wish like okay, I love paranormal so so much. <laughs> I love like Cressley Cole, goddess, goddess, goddess. Just love her. I mean, so many of them, but. Uh, but I'm not sure that I can do that well, and I don't understand how I can love someone's work that much, you know, and 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 love that type of genre so much, and yet not really have a knack for it. Because if you love something, you should, you know, theoretically, you know. But but now I'm not sure that I'm really good at that. So I, I'm. It's probably doubtful that, that I'll ever try that. Although, like I, you know, I still have vampire fantasies. Okay, so of course. I mean, I, I'm still not tired of vampires, you know, give me a good vampire. And that's just, that is a great, that, that pushes some buttons right there. You know? So, so here's a thought for you to just sort of squirrel away in the back in the, in the, in what I call the crock pot in the back of my mind that simmers <laughs> all the ideas, just toss this in the mental crock pot. So if you have a vampire yeah. and you know, the vampirism in your world comes with immortality, then you could write both a historical and a contemporary because he's going to be alive from the Regency all the way up till now. Oh my and, God. And you can write a 600 page book. Everyone's happy. That is badass. That is a good, good idea. Oh my! For all is, of your editors, has, has anyone done that? They should. Well, no, no, because the heroine can't live. So would he go through several heroines, or would he? Or he would live a life of cravats and and desolation until he found a woman that he loved so much, but he couldn't turn her because that would be horrible and oh, internal conflict. Somewhere there is an editor at Avon with their head between their knees right now, going, "Oh God, no! Please don't do this." To me. <laughs> See, that sounds so wonderful. I would and read that. <laughs> the, the thing that I've always loved about, um, you know, the romance genre is is the kind of hero where, okay, I'm trying to word this the right way. Okay, like I like some politically incorrect in a hero because it's just so thrilling and fun and sexy when, you know, they're kind of, you know. I'm quote, not supposed to man. say this to you. Yeah. Yes, that was that was the that was the line in Smooth Talking Stranger that I love, where he's mentally flipping through all the things he wants to say and he can't say them because they're all ter terrible. And yes. Crazy. Yes. 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 Exactly. And, and yet they're how he feels. You yes. know, because if you're a guy, you have a certain amount of testosterone. You're, you know, yeah, you're gonna feel a little bit caveman like every now and then. So, so the the really great romances are the ones in which the hero just cannot help himself. And, and you, you actually give him a good reason. Like, he can't just be alpha asshole and get away with it unless, you know, I'm a vampire. I have to suck your neck because, you know, it's just who I am. I can't help it. Or, you know, I have to open the door and be a little bit alpha because I'm from Texas and therefore I can't help it. Or I, I live in the 1800s. So yep. you know, that gives him the excuse. So it's only when it's not justified that, that a hero is an alpha jerk and, and he doesn't have the excuse that it's... And it's, it's really turned off. You know? And it's not built into his character in any logical way. It's yeah. like a, it's like a really bad fitting coat that he's wearing. And it's like, dude, that's not you. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. So it's, it's, it is a difficult art to write a hero who is strong, tough, manly, and yet at the same time is a nice guy. And that, 
I, you know, I think I've, I've managed to get a decent balance a lot of the time, but well, thank you. Thank you. But, but I, you know, not, not all the time. I mean, the thing is I'd rather err on the side of manly or alpha than have a wimp. You know, I can't stand a wimpy hero. So. Oh, I totally, well, I can't stand wimpy characters. It's like you, yeah. you have, you have 300 plus pages of opportunity for self-actualization and sex. Let's go. Come on. <laughs> exactly. That's why I'm here. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And so, so there was a, um, a scene in Cold Hearted Ray where, you know, I got, I was actually surprised by some of the responses I got where, you know, some readers were, were fine with it because he, he is, um, okay. It's, it's, they're in a carriage house and he kind of is playing with her and basically they end up inside this stationary carriage and there's, there's some stuff going on. He was, I, I believed that in that scene, I made it absolutely clear that they both knew they were playing and that it would stop anytime she, she wanted it to. And in fact, I think he even did the typical, you know, if you want me to stop at any time, I will. And and yet there were some readers who felt like it was just crossing the line, like he was too forceful or, you know, whatever. And, and I was surprised by that. And I, I wondered if maybe the limit for that is going down, you know, in, in readers' minds or else maybe I just didn't handle that scene the right way. You know, but it's just an example of how tough it is. To, oh, it's, to very, the- it's very difficult, especially because one of the... I don't want to say vestiges or it's one of the things that is a very early hallmark of the books that we were talking about earlier, like Shanna and a lot of the Kathleen Woodowis and Rosemary Rogers books was that the heroine could not always be an active participant in her own sex life. Yes. It wasn't permitted in the, in the scope of when the book was published. It wasn't an, it wasn't something that was encouraged among readers. You know, female sexual agency was not something that happened a lot. And yeah. so there's all like there's like remnants of that and mm-hmm. almost remnants of that expectation, even though, like you say, the the consent is becoming more and more prominent and important. And I think it's it's almost as hard for in some scenes when you have like play acting or role playing or, you know, a great deal of emotion. It's almost like in a contemporary trying to work in the condom scene where it's not awkward, but it's clear that there's a condom yeah. use. Uh huh. That's that's a toughie. Exactly. It's it it can be very difficult to incorporate all the elements in the right order that it doesn't look like, um, that it doesn't interrupt the emotion of the scene that's actually happening. But at the same time, all of those things are important. Like I totally noticed. Like, did no one use a condom? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, and, and like what, especially in a contemporary context, you know, it, what self-respecting woman or self-concerned woman, you know, wouldn't think about, you know, disease, pregnancy, oh, whatever. Yeah. You and know, just as he's uh, just as he's about to, um, let's say, ring the doorbell is not the time <laughs> to say, oh, I'm totally clean. Yeah, me too. Let's do this. Like, <laughs> I know, I know. No, just just no. <laughs> I, know. I know it's a tough one. I, I'm even, you know, wrestling with it a little bit in, in the historical context where they didn't think much about it back then. But uh you know, especially when you're dealing with a rake who, you know, has been around and you, you know, ugh, all sorts of stuff, you know, disease wise and everything was happening back then. Um, you know, so it's, it's just one of those things. It's hard to ignore once, once you're aware of it. It's true. Um, but yeah, but I, I haven't even really thoroughly researched what condoms were like back then, but I, ugh. I guarantee you they were bad. You know, I, for, I don't know every, if anyone wants to read that. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know exactly. Yeah, probably not something I'll go into a lot of detail about, but yeah. So what are some of the things that you've really enjoyed about returning to the historical genre? I mean, I know you have the the, the deep dive into history and all of the little tiny intimate details that can help build that world. And because you're writing during you know a period of an enormous industrial development, there's more details that you can include that aren't the, the expected you know checklist of things that happen in the Regency. You, you yeah. have all this new world to play in. What are some of the things that you really enjoyed about having returned to historical? Oh, I, you know, there is just some, there is something about, I, I don't know why it's my natural voice, but my, my, my natural, my comfortable writing voice really seems to be historical. I, I love the dialogue. Absolutely love it. I love the, the archaic words and I love the idea that people really tried to phrase themselves artfully, you know, and they really tried to express themselves in a beautiful way. So, you know, 
that's lost in, in a contemporary context because we're all very efficient w- when we speak, you know, yeah. by comparison. And so everything is shorthand and everything is kind of choppy and, and fast. Whereas back then, you know, people had time to, to sit and listen to someone else really trying to articulate what what they felt or what they thought. That that whole sense of people interacting uh and, and having time and sitting in the parlor and having these long conversations, it makes their relationships different than than we have in a, in a contemporary context. And, you know, I, I, I really enjoy that. I really enjoy the fact that you can have these women's relationships, you know, as, as friends and sisters and stuff where, you know, they really sit and pay attention to each other. You know, it makes it makes it very deep relationships. And I've noticed when I'm when I'm you know visiting people, and one of the things that's really odd and interesting is that we moved into an area where we already have a lot of people that we know. So we sort of moved into a circle of friends that we already had. And so you know we'd only been here a month, and we had you know, I had a brunch date. We're going to trivia. We have people over. Like it's weird. Like we didn't have to do that whole awkward meeting thing because we knew a uh, bunch of people. And nice. I noticed that. I am much more comfortable when I have something to do with my hands while I'm talking to someone. Oh, so yes. If yeah. I'm cross-stitching or I'm doodling on something, I remember the conversation better because it's like the sort of, the, you know, the Jack Russell Terrier part of my brain is being soothed <laughs> and I can listen better. And so I have had these wonderful conversations while I'm cross-stitching because you, you, you're listening better when you're occupied in some way. And I think of all these women sitting in parlors and stitching and embroidering yes. and, and embroidering all of these things that they would do at that time. And I'm like, you guys are totally onto something. Oh, I think so too. Yes. Because there was always so much sewing to be done. And oh, so yes. I, I just, uh, I, I actually love needle pointing, but as far as actual sewing, I'm just, uh, you know, I've, I've learned when I was younger and I'm just not that good at it. I, I think there's a certain amount of precision that I'm just not capable of. And, uh, but, but yeah, sewing was, was a big thing. And, you know, I love it that everybody, you know, was trying to sketch and, and uh, learn languages. But, but another thing that I'm enjoying about historical is just that you can believably have a heroine who is so innocent and everything is so new to her that it, the love scenes are so fun. It is really fun because, you know, what's happening to me? What is this? You know, hopefully not in a stupid way, but, you know, in, in a way where it's just fresh and fun because they didn't know everything, you know? In a lot of ways, when you embark in, an, in a newer historical period, you're inviting the reader to be the character who does not know anything of what's happening or knows a little yeah. bit, but gets to see how it all happens. Like I remember, okay, I'm really bad with titles and I want to say this was one of the wallflower books, but I don't remember which one. I remember there was just a throwaway conversation about how if all of the servants are washing all the time, how will I know which women are of which class? Oh yes. Yes. I, I, uh, I think that was scandal in, in spring. And, uh, because it was about, yeah, it was about the mass production of soap. Yes. And all, yeah. Yeah. Cause their father was a soap manufacturer and, and yeah, that it, it, it was a, it was a real concern at the time. If, if there are going to be ready-made dresses where lower class women and upper class women all start looking more alike. And if everyone is washing with soap, how do you know who's appropriate for me to talk to or, or who to be? And it's just ridiculous, but they're, they're, you know, the class differences were so, they were so conscious of them at the time. And I remember reading that and thinking, Oh my God, seriously. And then of course my, the rest of my brain catches up. Well, yes, of course, seriously, that would have been a legitimate conversation and logical thing to to talk about, even though the person who's asking has revealed themselves to be a bit of a dick. You, it was like, Oh, that was very telling. You're kind of awful. Aren't you? Good. Exactly. Exactly. Thank you for that um, warning. the, uh, the legal status of women, too, is, is something that I'm just so fascinated with. And, you know, I went to Wellesley. I, I'm a feminist and I, uh, uh, you know, and, I, and I like to say it. I think feminism's gotten a bad rap where people think it means you're burning your bra, which, trust me, I would never do. But <laughs> Very expensive. <laughs> I, need it. I, I am need not it. burning my bras. They are like $85 a piece. Yes. There's no burning, but I'm still a feminist. No question. Exactly, exactly. But when you realize that really not long ago, that when a woman married, she ceased to be a legal entity and could not um, sign a contract, could not hire anyone. Um, 
if, if you were a single woman and you had what they call femme soul status, then uh, then yeah, you, you could have a company, you could have uh, a bank account, although no woman could open a bank account by herself. You had to have a guy do it, even if it was your own money. And um, when you realize that a woman ceased to exist legally once she got married, uh, but she got some of those rights back when she became a widow, you know, you're, you're thinking, well, that's just crazy. You know, it's like once you married, you, you really were not a person anymore. And, uh, and that was not that long ago. So I'm having, uh, Pandora, this particular heroine that I'm working with right now. Um, you, you can tell at the end of marrying Winterborn that she wants to be independent and that she wants to maybe have her own business. But my God, how do you do that when, you, when you're a creative, strong, free-thinking young woman back then? You know, you certainly can't have it all. You get married and you lose it all. So mm -hmm. it's, it's a tough thing for her, you know? It's definitely a tough thing. And it's also, it's also familiar. There are a lot of ways in which women now are severely limited. It may yes. not be that, you know, you can't sign a contract, but there are things that you are limited or or burdened with the expectation of doing. I can't believe I didn't send this to you because it blew my mind and it's the total type of thing that you would love. I'll have to send it to you. So mm -hmm. there was this huge, huge Metafilter discussion on, on Metafilter.com about the emotional labor of women and how it's almost always women who do things like make sure there's a meal on the table, send the birthday card to the elderly relative, mm -hmm. make sure you get mm -hmm. a birthday present, coordinating a home, coordinating schedules, coordinating food. And that that work has a cost. Like it, it, it is a labor. It has value and it is draining, but because yeah. it's invisible, people don't acknowledge it or even see it. Oh, you, know, you must send that to oh me. Oh my yes, gosh. It will blow your mind. Mm -hmm. I will say yeah. that, and somebody blessed them because the, the, the page was like a bazillion lines long. Somebody took it and made a annotated highlighted PDF and the PDF was still 52 pages and I read every single word. It blew my mind. Oh, I'm going to also, I'm going to, yeah, it, it's funny because, uh, I mean, this sort of relates, uh, my, my husband had heard this thing the other day that he asked me about, about a, a makeup tax. And he was like, what, what are they talking about? Makeup tax. And it was in the, the context of women in business or women in politics. And um, it, so I was like, well, honey, it, it means that women not only have to pay more money, but they also have to spend more time doing your hair and makeup. Like every single morning, you know, if, if you're in business and you're going to the office, you know, you have to do that. Whereas men, you know, they, they shave, brush their hair and that's it. And so, yes, the obvious answer is, well, just don't wear makeup and just don't, you know, do your hair well. And it's like, that's not an option. That, no. That's not. You know? So, yeah, it's women. Women have had it harder in ways that are so subtle and invisible as well as the obvious ways, you know. And it's and it's it's unappreciated and unacknowledged the, 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 the physical and the financial cost of those things. Yeah. And that's been true no matter what historical era you're in. Oh, it's true. It's yeah. true. Yeah. And so, so these, these struggles, you know, don't have to be front and center in, in a historical romance, but, but they're there and they, they should be there. It, you should get at least a little sense of what it would feel like to be a woman back then. And because I know, I'm sure that even if, if it was the times and everybody had to deal with it and that was just a woman's lot, you know, there were women who didn't like it, who chafed at it, who, who were frustrated by it. You know, oh, there had to be women who were like, I'm so not excited about darning everyone's rumors <laughs> today. <laughs> can't make me care about this. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so I, uh, I will tell you, though, I did have fun with marrying Winterborn, though, because he owns the world's largest department store and his house is literally next to the store because he owns this entire street block, you know, for the store and everything. So like anytime in the novel that there's a problem or she needs like a new pair of stockings or something, it's just like the store is right next door. And oh, I, and it's I really, horrible. Oh, it's, I, I had, it's like this deep latent fantasy. I never knew I had to like have <laughs> an entire department store, you know, next door to me so that I could plunder it at will. So, <laughs> the fact that he's Welsh was super fun because I'd never done a Welsh hero before. And it's, you know, I, the, when I really committed to it and knew that I was going to have to do a Welsh hero is, is when I had read somewhere that a Welshman is like a Scotsman or Irishman on steroids or like, you know, 10 times that. And I was like, okay, well, that would be a fun hero. <laughs> Here for this. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So yeah, it, so he, he goes through a lot of angst about, you know, 
I'm so tall. I have too many muscles. I'll crush her in bed, you know, and I always like these sort of problems, you know. Oh, it's, it's, it's okay that that's a problem. We, we're okay with that problem. Yeah, you know who did that the best though ever was Loretta Loretta Chase oh, with Lord Scoundrels. He's just terrified that he's going to hurt her because he's just so large and masculine, and you know, it, it, and it was like that through the whole book, and I loved it. It was <laughs> no one will ever do it better than that ever. It was fantastic. So I have two questions for you from podcast patrons. One is from two more. I have four total. Megan wants to know. First, she would like me to thank you for all of the wonderfulness that you have written. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Megan. And she also wants to know what inspires or triggers your storylines? What are you know what, what are the things that help you enter the world that you're writing about? Is it like a story or is it a detail? Or do you start with the people? What what is your what is your inspiration or trigger point? Well, the it, absolutely always I, I start with one character. Sometimes it's the heroine, sometimes it's the hero. But um, there, there's usually one of them that has more of a more baggage that's a driving force in the in the book, where their character arc is the deepest and the, and the most important. And so I start with that character, and then I try to find the foil that would uh, provide not only the most conflict but the most help and, and resolution. Um, because it's always the best when someone seems so opposite from you, but then underneath you have these important things in common and and that just that makes the relationship fabulous so um so i'll start with the the character whoever's having the most problems or the most need to change um find their find their foil or their their counterpart and usually the setting especially you know like with this victorian setting there are so many things going on that usually the hero's occupation or that the heroine's, you know, occupation or desire provides more ideas than I can even do anything with, you know? That makes a lot of sense. Cause in, in effect, you're creating the character and also sort of building in their conflict. Yes. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and the, this, the thing that's most important, I think to, to my characters or, or my books is that, one or both of them feel like an outsider. And, you know, I mean, I, I have no problem saying, you know, personally, when I, when I was growing up, I felt very much like an outsider. I mean, I think everyone does in middle school and part of high school. Yeah, I think it's uh, a requirement but, of puberty. Yes, yes. So, but I mean, I was very shot, bookworm, huge glasses, braces, uh, you know, never felt pretty. And, uh, you know, it just, I, so, so that sense of not fitting in and that that desire to fit in is is this powerful driving force. And I think, you know, my personal drive just to to work hard and try to accomplish things, you know, sort of stems from that that feeling back then. Well, I'm going to find a way to be successful and, and fit in. And so, you know, pretty much every hero that I've um, that I've done really has that sense of being an outsider. And of course, that's what the wallflowers were all about in a I loved it that you had four women who all felt like complete dorks or, you know, not fitting in and, and they help each other because that's what we do. You know, we, we, we try to help our friends and tell them what they look good in and what they need to do. And we yeah. listen to their problems. So, you know, that's, that, that's key is it's, it's boring when it's two people who really fit in and are, are sure of themselves. You know, there's not much of a story there. And it's interesting to see people who are friends in romance. Um, I think I think that it, it's really enjoyable in addition to the found family to mm -hmm. also have people who have caring friends who they turn to and rely on in addition to the romantic person. So it's yes. not just the hero or it's not just the heroine that they have other people who support and care about them whose relationships are just as important as the romantic one that's being built during the course of the story. Oh, very much, very much. And, you know, it's also a huge source of humor. I mean, I think there's nothing funnier than women talking. Women are, are really funny, I think, innately. <laughs> yes. I mean, like, you know, you know, these conversations that you can have with your friend that you could not even have with your husband, you oh, know? Yes. And so that's, that's an important, th I mean, that would, I would hate not to be able to do that. And I don't know how some people can write books and not do that, but, you know, and I'm not slamming anybody's stuff, but I'm just saying it's important to me personally to have it in there. Right. Of course. So this question is from Jane. She wants to know, 
you have become such an icon among romance writers. How do you handle that? And who were the writers that you looked up to as icons when you first started writing? What did you learn from them? Who were your role models when you were starting out? And what do you do now that you're looked up to that way? Oh, well, I, I appreciate that. And I, um, you know, I, I don't feel like, an, I mean, I, I, I feel so, you know, loved and appreciated and, it, and it, it means so much to me now, but like, I don't, um, you know, I don't walk out to my, my little office in the backyard, uh, you know, with my tiara on or anything. And although I should probably, but <laughs> anyway, I, I, so I think the, I'm trying, there are so many, it's actually sort of hard to name. Judith McNaught, I, I think was huge for me because she, she was one of these bridge writers where you had the Kathleen Woodowis who started it all and, and, you know, Shirley Busby and Rosemary Rogers and all that. But then there was this very important transitional period where these writers kind of showed us the way toward, um, you know, modern historical romance. And so Julie Garwood, Judith McNaught, um, th those writers I really looked up to and admired how they were how they were making the the genre relevant you know as, as it was changing and Judith McNaught personally I just met her a couple of times but what a gracious kind amazing woman but before I was even published um I went to a romance conference and she was signing advanced copies of this book she'd done called Once and Always oh I love that and, book oh I did too I did too. and there was this incredibly long line and there was no way that she had enough books to sign. And I just kind of stood off to the side, you know, with my lower lip dragging the ground. And <laughs> so, and, and then, uh, I don't know why I guess she looked over or something and, uh, you know, it's, it's, I'm making myself sound really obnoxious, but, but she, she said something like, you know, do you need something or can I help you? And, and I said, no, I'm just about to go to the back of the line. I'm hoping there'll be a, a book left though, because, you know, I'm an aspiring writer and I want so much to read this and blah, blah, blah. So anyway, I went to the back of the line and then the whole line just sort of disintegrated once there were no more books and everybody went on their way. So I started to leave the room and she came up to me and handed me one of the books that she had saved for me. <gasps> oh, that's so lovely. Just, just saying, I know. And she didn't know me. Um, you know, I, maybe she feared I would be really obnoxious and, you know, follow her around if she didn't. I don't know. But, but, but no, she was so kind and so nice. And that, you know, that really it has always stayed with me. And I, you know, I've tried to do things similar to that because, you know, every person that I meet in line when, when I'm signing books, you know, I understand they're, they're there for a reason and that it's, you know, that they're, they're important to me. I mean, without these women supporting me and buying my books, then, you know, I wouldn't be able to do what I do. So, you know, I, I think that that sense of caring, you know, hopefully, comes through personally and in my writing because I, I feel it very intensely, you know, and, and I know what it's like to be in a terrible situation at three in the morning, stressed about something and uh, you, you need an escape. And so a romance novel is, is always what I've reached for. And so if someone ever reaches for one of my novels, it better be a damn good one because three in the morning is a tough time, you know. And of course, so many romance writers are romance readers and have been in that yeah. place. Uh -huh. And so uh -huh. it must be it must be quite amazing to find yourself in the position where someone's reaching for your book the way that you reached for someone else's. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a complete honor. And and yet at the same time, it's uh, it's it's pressure, good pressure for me, because anytime I'm thinking, oh, well, you know, I don't feel like it today, or this scene is good enough, then I'm thinking it's not, it's not good enough. No part of the book is ever good enough if somebody's reading this at three in the morning, you know? <laughs> yeah, sure. just a little. Uh -huh. Yeah, but that's, that's, I mean, I, I can't, I, if I can't handle it, I shouldn't be doing this, but I, it, it's part of a drive that, um, that I think is necessary. If you're going to have a career for 25 or 30 years, you know, A, you better like it, and B, you better keep yourself motivated. And, so I, one of, one of my prime motivations is just knowing there's somebody who doesn't know me out there, but may need what I'm writing just for an escape. And if it's not a good escape or if it's a, a, a indifferently written escape, it's not going to help her very much. And that every book should at least try to be a three in the morning book. 
Yes, yes, exactly. And I always aim for that. It is so disappointing to me if a book doesn't turn out to be that. So I aim for that every time. Um, and I don't think that anyone could ever be full of themselves you know, when, when they truly honestly look at, at their efforts, because not everything is perfect. Not everything turns out as well as it, as it could. And so I'm so conscious of that, that it just keeps me striving, you know? And, 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 and things in publishing have changed a lot since you started so mm. many different ways of, of doing things. Like I remember just even a few years ago, authors talking about how they had to print out their manuscripts and put them in FedEx boxes so that they could get trackable delivery to their publisher or their agent. Yeah. And yeah. all of that's these right. things, like you don't have to do that anymore. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's, it, it has changed um, incredibly too. And in, in the variety of ways you can approach a historical, I mean, Julia Quinn was just so amazing in bringing humor into the genre even more strongly than Julie Garwood, you know, who who really was was fabulous at that. But Julie Quinn just added a lightness to the entire genre that was much needed and, and really welcomed. And you know, so I I've tried to incorporate some of that and and be free to have fun and do that. But at the same time, you know, I also like some of the really dark, moody, sexual stuff also. Oh and, yes. Yeah, it's it's fun. Stick stick the layers of humor together with sex or vice versa and but not just sex. I mean like, you know, intense, deep longing, yearning. I mean that to me is the really good stuff. Yes, please. But that also <laughs> that is also a conflict. You you can't yearn for anything unless you cannot have it. Yes. There's no yes. yearning unless it's an obstacle that's preventing you from, you know, achieving the thing that you're yearning for, which just makes it better. Exactly, exactly. Or having it and wondering if you could hold on to it, you know, like that the whole conflict. I know some people must be tired of it, but that whole conflict with the hero thinking I'm not good enough for her. I mean, who, who wouldn't fantasize about some really in incredible, fabulous guy just agonizing because he may not be worthy of you? To me, that's a good fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> well, it also means that he doesn't take you for granted. Yes. It's the yes. it's the opposite of being taken for granted. You're and, right. And, You're and, right. And that's a big, heady fantasy, because especially if you think about where a lot of women are in their lives when they are reading a romance, they are more likely in, in, in at least one or two, maybe like nine different circumstances in which someone is either under, underestimating them or taking them, their presence and work for granted. And having someone do the opposite of that is an incredible thing to read about. Okay, Sarah, I never thought about it that way. I love that. That's great. That really illuminates it. Yeah, definitely. And the other thing when she said about comedy, I did a, a podcast interview with a writer named Liza Palmer who writes um, contemporaries with some romantic elements, but she now works for BuzzFeed because they are doing original scripted comedy in part, as she puts it, because there have been no good romantic comedies in film in like 10 years and she hates it. There, I know. There's no yeah. more romantic comedies. And I thought, you know, that's what the genre needs. We need to be able to single out. These are the historical comedies. These are the contemporary comedy romances. Mm -hmm. These are the ones that are funny exactly I, I totally have times where it's like okay cathartic cry would be good let's you know let me find something with the name kinsale on it and then i'll cry yes. for like nine hours and i'll feel better but sometimes i just want to you know laugh my fool head off and it, it's it's lovely that there's some of that in every part of the genre oh i agree i agree yeah and, and with romantic comedies i just i, I idolized oh nora efron i love nora efron so much and i just i miss her she she's needed and I, I wish somebody would come along who could who could capture a little bit of what she had and, and do it with film. Because whenever you see romantic comedies now, they're so bitter or they're so empty, you know? And they're and they're based on disappointment. Yes, yes. And it's it it's too bad. It's it's too bad because she she really brought something to the to the movie business. I, I think that there are though people who are doing it in in romance fiction. Oh yes. You know, if, if only they would make those into movies. I know. What's what's that about? Did you see the documentary that Nora Ephron's son did about her? Not yet. I'm dying to. I, was it, is it good? Have you seen it? Yes. I actually taped it off of HBO and watched it with my husband one night. I'm, 
I am not good at watching television. I have a deep mistrust of television writers because they don't like to know when the end is. They would prefer not to have one because if there's no yeah. end, then there's syndication. And I am a romance reader. I like to know that you have an end. In my Amen. Mind. You know, like this is why I love K-dramas because, you know, K-dramas and, and telenovelas, they have an end. Like there's a point where it's supposed to end. And so uh, there are very few shows that my husband and I both agree on and he watches the rest of them while he's working out. So if, if you ever are in my house and it sounds like someone is screaming or being beaten or there's entrails. He's watching Game of Thrones on the treadmill and has it turned up to like volume level 12. <laughs> and I'm always worried that the neighbors are like, what happens in your house between 6 and 6.30? Like what is going on in there? But one of the things that we both agree on are, are documentaries because we're both super nosy nerds who like to learn things. The we Nora, do too. Oh, do love too. them. So the Nora Ephron documentary, it's so loving because it's her son. And you can tell that this is, you know, something he did to sort of encapsulate and collect all of the things that she did into one meaningful, you know, hour and a half. And it's very honest because she she also had a very, you know, sharp and sometimes mean sense of humor. And when she did not like you, you knew it very clearly. But the way that they talk about her as a writer is incredible. Like it's just as a, as a female writer in an extremely male dominated industry, as a journalist, and then as a features writer, and then as a novelist, and then as a movie per producer and, and writer, it was just like, oh my God, what, what else did you, did you also sell Tupperware and Mary Kay? What else did you do? She was amazing. This documentary will blow your mind. Uh, did, did they go into her cooking? Because apparently she was incredible. She was an incredible cook. I didn't know if they put that in there too. Very, very little bit. Like they used to talk about how she hosted dinners and she made it effortless to be both cooking and in the party at the same time, which is not an art that I have. It it's really good. Oh, oh, I've got to see it. Uh, I will, I will send you if I can remember this. I will, and I can find it. There, there is a peanut butter cookie recipe. I have never tried it, but apparently it was her favorite cookie recipe. She said it was the best cookie she'd ever had in her life. And she had to hound this chef for apparently years to get it. And then <laughs> so. Uh, anyway, so I'll, I'll send it to you. I don't know. I'm not even a huge peanut butter cookie fan, but if she said it was the best, it's got to be the best. It's got to be. Yeah. yeah. So my last question of every interview is, is always a bit of a challenge because if I'm springing it on someone, they're like, I don't know. I have to grab my phone or my Kindle or my bookshelf. But are there any books that you've read lately that you want to tell people about? Oh, I was so blown. Oh, I can't remember the title. Darn it. Okay. I was so blown away by a Julianne Long, uh, book that I read and I, I think the cover had a lot of red on it. I can't believe I can't remember the title. Julianne Long is fabulous. Uh, Eva Lee, Darcy Burke, um, Tessa Dare. I mean, I just think she she is so fantastic. Um, okay. So, I mean, I, and I know I'm naming some Avon. You know, Cressa Cole, I, I love her too. Okay, I'm the, looking at Julianne Long. It was a historical, right? Yes, okay, yes. Because she is a contemporary coming out at the end of May. Yeah, this, Hot in Hellcat Canyon. The two that are red are The Legend of Lion Redman, and then there was also um, A Notorious Countess Confesses had a lot of red in it, but that was about a vicar no, no, and, a, it, and, a, and a... It was red. I, I think it was Lion, Lion Redman. Lion Redman? Yes, yes. See, oh, your man. brain and my brain are the same. It, she was wearing a <laughs> yellow dress. It's the it's the Elizabeth Hoyt with the yellow dress, and she's looking over your sh sh shoulder at you, and, and all the librarians are now cringing as they hear you say that. <laughs> I know. I know. The, the thing that she captured, though, as I recall, is this hero who, you know, again, is like very strong, very manly, and yet a really nice guy. So you never have a fear that he's going to really hurt her. Um, like, she just has this sense of when to go for it and when to, to hold back just enough. And so the, the I, she, she's exquisite. She's absolutely exquisite. I, I, Think, I mean, I know she's already big, but I think she's going to be huge. I really do. She, she's amazing. I love that I have so many fond memories of reading her books and just being happy. Like she is a three in the morning mm -hmm, author mm -hmm. for me. Yeah, yeah she she's yeah. she a three in the morning book author. I remember reading her books wrapped up in a, a, a blanket on an airplane on an overnight trip and I can't sleep sitting up. I just, I have to accept this about myself. And I remember being all wrapped up in a blanket on an airplane in the dark, trying to keep my Kindle from disturbing all the people sleep, sleeping around me and reading like two of her books back to back. Like I spent that oh. whole flight in the Regency and it was oh. wonderful. Oh, that sounds fun. That sounds good. Well, oh no, I'll tell you who else, who, uh, Sarah McLean, um, the one where the, 
Uh, again, I'm, I'm describing the cover. She's wearing pants. She's wearing breeches on the cover. Oh, you know? never judge a lady by her yes, cover. Yes, yes, yes. And like, I, I would kill that. I'm going to make her come up with titles for my books because she does the best titles. I mean, she's fantastic. So I think one of them is what, A Scott in the Dark or something? Is, is yes. that the cutest title ever? So, uh, well, I mean, Cold Hearted yeah. Rake is not a slacking well, title. You. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, that that was just one of those that just popped into my head. And that was really, that was fun, especially when you're from my era, generation, whatever, when that Paula Abdul song was just everywhere. And you <laughs> could not escape it. So, so that was kind of fun. Is there anything else that you want to mention or talk about that I, that I missed asking? Is there anything that you wanted to add or mention or make sure you said something about? It, no, not, I mean, not really. It's just that the the past week has been so special to me because of the response, you know, of me announcing that I was going to write Devil in Spring. And uh, it just really renewed me. It, it made me feel so fantastic. And I've just been writing like a fiend ever since. So, you know, the support of all these romance readers and the, and the, the good wishes from them has has made such a difference. So, you know, I just, I just wanted to send love and appreciation to all, all of them. Oh, dude, you are so welcome because that, <laughs> that announcement just, it gave everybody something to celebrate. It was oh. so enjoyable. Oh, that's great. Well, I'm, I'm going to write a good book. I promise yes. it's coming along. And that is all for this week's episode. Thank you to Lisa Klepas for hanging out and talking with me. And thank you also to Jane, Katie, Rebecca, and Megan for your questions. I really enjoyed this interview. I hope you did too. This podcast is sponsored by romance reader and fantasy author Angela Corati. If you like your urban fantasy with music, magic, and computer geekery, then explore Fairy Blood, book one of the Free Court of Seattle series, available in print and digitally wherever ebooks are sold. Candace Thompson of Seattle thinks she's just as normal as the next computer geek, and until now, she's been right. But her world is about to turn on its ear because she is the daughter of a Seely Court mage and her mortal husband, and her fairy blood is awakening. Suddenly, the city she's known all her life is transforming before her eyes. Trolls haunt the bike trails. Fairies and goblins run loose in the street. An old woman who is not what she seems and a young wanderer running from his past stand ready to defend Seattle and Kendis from magical assault. She will need those allies because the power rising within her is calling her fey kin to the Emerald City to find her and kill her. In honor of this podcast, book one and two of the series are on sale for 99 cents each until July 15th, 2016. And I will have links in the podcast entry where you can find them. Author and podcast fan Kelly Mayer is sponsoring the podcast transcript and celebrating her latest birthday, but she's giving the gift to you. Her Sweet Heat collection of backlist titles are available for half price at all outlets through the end of July 2016, and her short story Blizzard Bliss is available for free through the link in the podcast entry. Volume 2 contains the novel End Balance and a short story Spring Storm. In End Balance, the CEOs of rival companies must deal with corporate espionage and the one-night stand they'd had months earlier. Volume 3 contains three paranormal novellas, including Tara's Awakening, in which an idealistic woman in a dystopian future discovers the industrialist that she has gone to confront has a much longer personal history than she could have ever imagined. Each book is on sale for $1.99, and you can find links to all three volumes at smartbitchestrashybooks.com slash podcast. This episode's music is provided by Crime and the Forces of Evil. This track is Kitsune at War from the album Bonewalker, which is the soundtrack for Angela Corati's Free Court of Seattle urban fantasy series. You can find this album at Bandcamp, Amazon, iTunes, or CD Baby, and we will have links to all of these places in the podcast entry. If you would like to support the podcast, please have a look at patreon.com smartbitches. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help make the podcast better and help me provide transcripts for the episodes that don't have one yet. Every pledge is so helpful, so if you've had a look or passed the link along or made a pledge yourself, thank you, thank you, thank you. You are entirely made of awesome. Future podcasts will include me talking with people about romance novels, because that's how we roll. And if you'd like to email me or you have a suggestion or an idea, you can email me at sbjpodcast at gmail.com, or you can call and leave us a message at 1-201-371-3272. Leave a message 
and I will hopefully use it in a future podcast, and you can pretty much ask anything you want. Go ahead. It'll be great. Until then, on behalf of Lisa Kleypas and myself and everyone here, have a very great weekend, and we wish you the very best of reading. <laughs>